Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 28, Order, Counter-Order, Disorder. As we've seen over the past several weeks, the Allied land campaign for 1915 was one of great confusion and overambition. Unlike the Central Powers under the generalship of Falkenhayn, the Entente and her allies struggled to work together as a cohesive unit. On the Western Front, disagreements between French and British High Command led to disastrous efforts in the spring and fall, while the ill-planned Dardanelles campaign dragged more manpower and resources away from the Continental Theatre. The French would often accuse the British of not pulling their weight, and the British thought the French were too overzealous in their planning. To make matters worse, both sides believed they were right. With this war of words happening in the West, the Russians found themselves at the mercy of the combined Austro-German armies. By summer's end, Falkenhayn's spearhead scored a major tactical victory against the Tsar's forces. The Russians were pulled back 500 miles as Galicia, Poland, and Lithuania fell under German occupation. Despite this, Russia was not defeated, and we used the winter of 1915-1916 to lick her wounds and reorganize her forces. If this humble podcast is to levy one big criticism of the Entente for 1915, is that they let the Central Powers dictate the pace of the war. Offensives in the West, notably the series of efforts in Artois and Champagne, were in reaction to events on the Russian front. The French attack at Vimy Ridge and British attack at Festubert followed just days after the opening of Gorlitsy Tarnov. In September, the second Artois-Champagne offensive, this time with the British attacking at Luz, was done prior to the conquest of Serbia. Even the entry of Italy on May the 23rd came at a time where its impact would go unfelt, as Cardona's Zidonzo campaign was quickly checked. Then there was the Gallipoli landings, which again were designed to aid the Russians by opening a supply route into the Black Sea. Although touted as a low-risk operation, the naval effort and subsequent peninsular landing would end up costing 392,000 Allied and Turkish casualties. The slaughter along the coast, equally brutal for men on both sides, would only end when it became clear Bulgaria was edging towards the Central Powers. Essentially, what we see in 1915 was the Entente scrambling to check the Central Powers at every turn, and one which never had the resources or leadership to take a concentrated initiative. But for this week, we're going to step away from the land campaign and focus on what was unfolding in the North Sea, where the war had taken on a very different character. Naval leaders like Alfred von Tirpitz in Germany and British First Sea Lord Jackie Fisher had foreseen their respective navies taking part in an Armageddon-style showdown over oceanic supremacy. Contrary to what they, and what many others believed, the war at sea played out far less climatically. With the destruction of Admiral von Spee's Far East Squadron, the focus of the naval war shifted to the elimination of enemy merchant fleets and ocean-going commerce. The Royal Navy blockade, established immediately after the war broke out, continued working to cut off German maritime shipping. The Germans, facing a prolonged war after the failure of the Schlieffen plant, were forced to turn to a new, relatively untested weapon, the U-boat, or submarine. On February 18th, German naval command would unleash the first phase of unrestricted submarine warfare, aimed at destroying Allied merchant shipping in the North Sea. Now before we begin, you probably already know that the submarine campaign took place in two phases. The first, from March to September 1915, and the second, much deadlier campaign from February 1917 until the Armistice. This week, we're going to focus exclusively on the first of these two campaigns, but we're going to divide our discussion over two episodes. For now, we're going to anchor ourselves in the months and weeks leading up to the first campaign, so roughly the period from January until May. Next week, we'll pick up with the most famous event of that first U-boat campaign, the sinking of the canard liner Lusitania off the Irish coast, an event synonymous with the deadly U-boat. So, let's get started. 
The story of the first unrestricted campaign roughly begins when the Royal Navy set up its blockade of the North Sea in August 1914. It was no secret to anyone that if Britain and Germany came to blows, Germany would find herself cut off from her maritime trade. After all, that was the modus operandi of the Royal Navy. In the days of sail, this blockade would have fallen on the Heligoland Bight, a small L-shaped bay between the coasts of the Netherlands and Denmark. There is a map up at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, so don't worry about being lost in the geographic details. The Heligoland, roughly 300 kilometers from Danish to Dutch coasts, represents the only direct access Germany had to the North Sea. Because of this, the Admiralty would have liked nothing better than to blockade the Heligoland, ensuring no merchant or military ships left the German fleet base at Wilhelmshaven without their knowledge. But with the Industrial Revolution and changes to sea power and land weaponry, this close-style blockade was no longer feasible. The threat of coastal submarines, underwater mines, and longer-range artillery batteries meant that any blockade of the Heligoland poses greater risk to British ships than it would German. So, in 1914, the Admiralty correctly chose a second option. Instead, the British chose to blockade from a distance, by sealing off the waterways in and out of the North Sea, namely the English Channel and the northern entrance between Scotland and Norway. As long as German warships remained isolated, they could not break out into the Atlantic, and from their base at Scapa Flow in North Scotland, the British Grand Fleet kept a close eye on Wilhelmshaven, ensuring no ship would leave port without detection. Assisting the British in their blockade endeavor was the fact that in January 1915, Kaiser Wilhelm forbade the German high seas fleet from leaving port without his personal permission. This fateful decision, which essentially doomed the German fleet to inactivity for the remainder of the war, came as a result of an earlier engagement between British and German cruisers at the Dogger Bank, a shallow area roughly halfway across the North Sea. On January 24, 1915, a squad of German destroyers, smaller and lightly armored warships, slipped out of Wilhelmshaven under the cover of darkness, and proceeded to bombard the seaside resorts of Yarmouth, Hartlepool, and Scarborough, hoping to draw the Grand Fleet, commanded by Admiral Sir John Jellicoe, down from its base at Scapa Flow. Once Jellicoe's warships were exposed, a squadron of German battlecruisers would intercept and force the British into an attritional battle, where it was expected both fleets would suffer huge losses. This had been the German naval dogma since Tirpitz laid out his plans in 1897. Tirpitz knew that Germany could never overcome the might of the Royal Navy in a prolonged war, but it could deal as much damage as possible, leaving Britain severely weakened and exposed to her enemies. Although the coastal shellings marked the first time in more than a century that British civilians were killed on the home island, the raids failed to bring Jellicoe into battle. Instead, a convenient wireless intercept had informed Jellicoe of the German plan, and he dispatched a patrolling squadron of five battlecruisers, commanded by Vice Admiral David Beatty, to deal with the threat. Caught unprepared by the sudden appearance of enemy warships on the horizon, the German commander, Admiral Franz Hipper, turned back for home, with Beatty hot on his heels. When most of Hipper's fleet were able to stay out of gun range, the smallest ship, the armored cruiser SMS Blucher, was not so lucky. In short, the Blucher was the sick one of the herd, which bore the brunt of British gunfire while the faster ships made their way to safety. At around noon hour on January the 24th, the Blucher received the kill shot when a shell fired by one of Beatty's battlecruisers penetrated her upper deck and ignited the ammunition storage below. The Blucher capsized and soon sank, taking 792 sailors down with her. If you visit the website, I've uploaded a famous photograph of the Blucher's final moments, so be sure to give it a glance. It was the loss of the Blucher, an outdated warship by 1914 standards, which prompted Kaiser Wilhelm to order the high seas fleet remain anchored at Wilhelmshaven. The events at Dogger Bank, which came at the heels of an earlier engagement in August, had convinced the Kaiser that as long as the Royal Navy controlled the North Sea, the German fleet would always be one step behind. 
So in the Kaiser's calculation, it was better to preserve the surface fleet, and use it as a weapon of deterrence than risk his expensive capital ships in foolhardy expeditions. Despite numerous and quite vocal protests from Tirpitz, this decision by Wilhelm meant that naval staff would have to adopt a new plan in order to challenge the Allied fleets, except they didn't really have one. As you'll recall, the army had been Germany's deliverer, and was so much banked on the success of the Schlieffen plan, it was expected that the war would be over before the navy would need to get involved. In 1914, the blockade was not a serious issue, because it was believed that Germany's trade agreements with the neutral Baltic nations, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and the Netherlands, would help supplement the loss of Atlantic imports. With a longer war now looming, dealing with the blockade became a central issue. But, Germany received some help here. Among the neutral countries, notably the United States, there was a growing resentment towards the blockade, because they felt it was a violation of maritime trading rights. None of the neutral countries whom Germany traded with, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Netherlands, Argentina, Chile, and the United States, doubted Britain's right to impose a blockade. After all, it was only expected, given their history. The British had blockaded the American coasts in the War of 1812, and maintained a 20-year embargo of France during the reign of Napoleon. But new challenges for an effective blockade arose as the war grew in scope, and this was also felt in the commercial sphere. The problem facing the British was how to exercise their distant blockade of the North Sea without interfering on the rights of neutral shipping, and this was a very slippery issue. In simpler times, a blockading nation had the right to confiscate shipments bound for enemy ports, if the cargo was deemed of military use. This meant items exclusively for military needs, so guns, munitions, armored plating, or troops. It was a very limited list which guaranteed the separation between combatant and non-combatant spheres. But as the war dragged on, this once clear separation began to blur. Once the Admiralty caught wind that the Germans were resupplying themselves via their Baltic trade agreements, the British soon extended the list of contraband items, and pressured the Baltic states to cut back on German exports. For example, items previously not contraband, such as rubber, cloth, wool, paper, railway equipment, iron ore, and fertilizer, were now listed as contraband, since they could all be converted into military use. It is no surprise that soon after, the British began to feel the burn from the international community. Ironically, it was the United States which was the most vocal. President Wilson's Freedom of the Seas mandate ran counter to what the British were attempting to do. In 1913, Germany enjoyed a trade value of $32 million with the United States. Germany imported 60% of its copper and 100% of its wool and cotton from the American market, and thus it was highly profitable. Having lost its grain imports from Russia, Germany was soon forced to supplement its foodstuffs from the United States as well. However, as the list of contraband items increased, this drew the ire of American capitalists who felt it was ridiculous that ships bound from American ports were being stopped by the blockade. Venture capitalists, primarily from the south where most of the exported products came from, pressured President Wilson to take a firm stance against the British, who were violating American economic interests with their stupid blockade. In 1909, Germany, France, Italy, Russia, Austria-Hungary, and Japan had attempted to codify a single set of rules which governed maritime blockades. The London Declaration, as it was known, outlined neutral countries had the right to trade with any or all belligerents during wartime. Vessels which were stopped were to be investigated, its crew questioned, and if its cargo was deemed contraband, it was to be purchased at a market price. This had the dual effect of both minimizing casualties, but also ensuring that economic diplomacy was not damaged. While this all sounds very gentlemanly, it hardly kept up with the speed of reality. For starters, the British never ratified the London Declaration. Sea Power Pundits, aka everyone, argue that the Declaration gave too much power to neutral trade, and thus undermined the ability of the Royal Navy to exercise an effective blockade. Also, Article 1 of the Declaration outlines, quote, 
a blockade must not extend beyond the ports and coasts belonging to the enemy, unquote. But as we've already seen, the blockade was between Scotland and Norway in the English Channel. This last point led into another issue. In 1856, another declaration, this time the Declaration of Paris signed at the end of the Crimean War, specified that in order for a blockade to be deemed acceptable, it must be maintained by a sufficient enough force to prevent any access to the enemy coast. The problem here was that in 1914, the blockade was hardly airtight. The British cannot park a battleship off the Baltic coast and expect the Danes and Norwegians to be cool about it, and the Royal Navy had left no more than 12 rusty ships to man the line, which often had to be sent back into port for repairs. So to neutral countries, this blockade was never all that serious, and merchant shipping was more than capable to pass through without ever being stopped. This all changed on August 20th, 1914. The British Order of Consul gave London the power to infringe on neutral trade, by preventing the flow of foodstuffs or any items deemed contraband. Basically, the British were going to do it whether you liked it or not. Significantly, cotton was added to this list. Since cotton is important in explosive manufacturing, this touched off major protests in the United States, who had enjoyed a lucrative cotton trade with Germany. In fact, Germany imported two-thirds of all cotton exports. American animosity towards the British increased, and over in Germany, this was dutifully noted. It was clear to German leadership that with the naval blockade tightening, something had to be done. In January 1915, Germany became the first belligerent to introduce food rationing, but this was hardly enough. Also, with Wilhelm's order to keep the high seas fleet in anchor, alternatives soon began to spring up. The man at the center of the debate over submarine warfare was Admiral Hugo von Pohl, who would soon become commander of the high seas fleet on February 4, 1915. For Pohl, Germany was at a crucial juncture. She needed to adopt a long-term strategy in order to challenge the Allied fleets, and since the Kaiser was not going to risk his capital ships, the miracle weapon, the U-boat, was her best option. But his proposals took a while to gain traction. On November 7, 1914, Pohl first brought up the idea of a submarine campaign. The Chancellor, Betham Holwick, and Naval Secretary of State von Tirpitz argued that it was too risky. The civilian leadership in Germany were happy to bide their time, and since Anglo-American relations were near an all-time low, they did not want to run the risk of turning neutral sympathy against them by attacking civilian merchant ships. There was a logistical problem, too. Calculations had indicated that Germany would need to sink 600,000 tons of merchant shipping per month over a five-month span, in order to spark a food crisis in Britain. This would be a tough slog, since Germany only had 28 operational U-boats, and only half of that had the range and capacity to bring about this result. You see, the submarine was initially designed as a coastal defense weapon, used to protect harbors and home waters, not as an ocean-going offensive tool. During the American Civil War, the Union Army had deployed what many considered to be the first combat use of a submarine. The Alligator, as it was called, was a far cry from what we see in 1914. It was powered manually, and air had to be supplied from a tube which stuck out above the surface like a snorkel. The Alligator was deployed to combat the ironclad hulls of the Confederate ships, but also as a terror weapon to scare the pants off Confederate sailors. But since then, the strategic role of the submarine remained virtually unchanged. Stay close to home and ensure that no enemy ships dare enter our waters. Don't forget, it was the very threat of submarines which convinced the Admiralty to blockade far from the Heligoland. However, it is important to keep in mind that Admiral von Pohl was not arguing into a mirror, and the submarine had proven itself an offensive weapon earlier in the war. On September 22, 1914, German U-boat U-9 sank three obsolete British ships off the English Channel in 45 minutes, which had solidified in Pohl's mind that in larger quantities, the U-boat could be very effective. The big obstacle which Pohl faced in pushing his agenda was the moral argument regarding submarine warfare. 
Submarines have been attacking Allied shipping since the beginning of the war, but it always abided by prize law. Prize law can best be surmised as a gentleman's agreement between military and merchant ships during wartime. Upon encountering a merchant ship, the military vessel was to provide it with a warning, ensure that all crew were safely aboard lifeboats, and then the merchant ship was to be sunk. Afterwards, the merchant crew would be provided food and water and given a tow to the nearest friendly or neutral port. U-boat crews have been abiding by this protocol strictly, but Pole had come to see it as holding the submarine back from its true potential. For starters, the U-boat was most exposed while surface, and there was nothing stopping a merchant crew from sending a distress signal to any nearby warships. Secondly, submarines did not have the space to accommodate the crew of a merchant ship, so ensuring their safety was incredibly difficult. Plus, the German Navy needed to be careful here. Abandoning the prize law to adopt a more aggressive posture would no doubt cause grief among the neutrals, especially the United States. Although the British were on their high horse over their blockade, they were not destroying ships or putting civilian lives at risk. The worsening relations between America and Britain were the result of disagreements over maritime trade law, not quite as sexy as war against merchant civilians. Luckily for von Pohl, the British would provide him the moral argument he needed. As part of the Order of Consul on August the 20th, foodstuffs were now listed contraband, and any ship, neutral or otherwise, was now liable for confiscation. The British justified this by arguing that since the German government had taken over food distribution, any food which arrived at a port was now at risk of being sent to the front line, as Napoleon famously quipped, an army runs on its stomach. The issues surrounding foodstuffs became the moral justification Germany needed. To Admiral Pohl, Britain had made the first move in a war against civilians, and if London was going to blur the lines, then Berlin would do the exact same. The problem was, Tirpitz, Holwig, and the Kaiser were still reluctant to give it the go-ahead. Tirpitz was not opposed to the idea of a U-boat campaign, but believed they should wait until more were available, while Holwig and Kaiser Wilhelm remained unconvinced by the math. There was not enough U-boats in the fleet to bring the result Pohl wanted. Germany would need hundreds of U-boats, not mere dozens. Following the incident at Dogger Bank, von Paul was appointed Commander-in-Chief of the Grand Fleet, meaning he now had the authority to push his agenda for a U-boat campaign. On February the 4th, the day he was to receive the post, Pohl was accompanying the Kaiser on a review of the fleet at Wilhelmshaven. Keep in mind that this was after the Kaiser's order to keep the fleet in anchor. Admiral Pohl was convincing in his argument. Britain was going to starve Germany into submission. Britain had made the first move, so Germany was only protecting its population. And better yet, the U-boat will allow us to wage a naval war without risk to the Grand Fleet. This last point was music to the Kaiser's ear, and Wilhelm signed the order. The next morning, February the 5th, the Imperial German government issued a statement to all neutral and belligerents that the waters surrounding Great Britain and Ireland, including the whole English Channel, were now a military area. Quote, Beginning on February the 18th, all enemy merchant ships in these waters will be destroyed, irrespective of the impossibility of avoiding in all cases danger to the passengers and crew. End quote. Essentially, the statement says that Germany will try to avoid neutral ships, but no promises. Now, an often held misconception about this first phase of unrestricted submarine warfare is that German U-boats terrorized the North Sea, sinking any and all ships willy-nilly. This is largely a construct stemming from a post-Lusitania world. As we've seen, Germany only had 28 operational U-boats. Divide that among long-range, short-range boats versus the number required for coastal defense and reserves, the Germans can only maintain 6 to 8 U-boats at any one time. The North Sea is a big place, roughly 750,000 square kilometers in total. So to make up for their limited number, naval planners had to choose their hunting ground carefully. Three U-boats were positioned at the western entrance to the English Channel, while on the east coast of England, a fourth and fifth would patrol off the Thames and Tyne estuaries. 
Then in the northeast, three more would operate in an area near the Skagerrak Strait, in order to prevent British warships from penetrating into the Baltic. Although limited in numbers, the U-boat would soon prove their worth. To paint a broad picture, the average submarine in 1914 had a length of 190 to 215 feet, and a width of 20 to 30 feet. Depending on where and when a particular boat was designed, it was typically manned by a crew of about 25, jammed into an airtight compartment under the command of a junior officer, usually a lieutenant. While surfaced, submarines burned kerosene which gave them an operational range of 3,500 kilometers. Later, ocean-going models would have much longer range, part of the reason why the second campaign of 1917 was far more deadly. When submerged, U-boats operated on a second battery source, and could stay underwater for up to 12 hours with a range of 160 kilometers and a top speed of only 5 to 10 knots. Now these stats alone should give us a hint about how U-boats operated. Since they would be on patrol for days and weeks, most U-boat crews opted to spend most of their time on the surface, and would only dive when enemy warships were in the area. Not only did this save batteries for emergencies, but it also helped crew morale. Because, frankly, once the submarine was submerged, it really, really sucked. The humidity generated inside was nearly unbearable, and the crew slept in damp sheets and worked in damp clothes. Food was often served with a layer of oil, and a strict no-smoking policy made temper short. Despite this, U-boat crews enjoyed some of the highest morale rates in the German military. The rigid command structure found in the surface fleet or army did not exist. U-boat commanders, being junior officers, were roughly the same age as their crew and due to space restrictions, officers did not enjoy separate sleeping quarters and ate their meals with their crew. Because of this close connection, many officers took a relaxed approach to maintaining discipline, which inevitably helped create a strong sense of camaraderie. So how did the first U-boat campaign play out? Well, it was not as impressive as you might think. As mentioned earlier, it was estimated that 600,000 tons of merchant shipping needed to be sunk monthly, and the returns on that were not good. 89,500 tons in March, 38,600 in April, 126,900 in May, 115,290 in June, 98,000 in July, 182,770 in August, and 136,050 in September. In total, the first campaign over five months brought 787,120 tons of Allied shipping to heel. While impressive for an untested tactic, this was not the result the Germans were looking for. But why? The Allies had no way of countering the U-boat in 1915, and the vital English Channel Irish Sea trade routes were packed with ships heading back and forth to England and France. Part of the problem, besides the lack of U-boats, was that German leadership were walking a fine line with the campaign, and they knew it. In his memoirs, Turpert summarized the first U-boat campaign as order, counter-order, and disorder, meaning that it lacked clear direction. Essentially, German naval staff believed they were justified in their decision. However, they showed an amazing ability to bend and twist their commitment at the slightest hint of American protest. For example, initial American reaction was actually quite positive, and President Wilson issued that since Britain was now confiscating foodstuffs, Germany had the right to defend itself and kind, as long as American ships did not become targets. At the start, orders to U-boat commanders outlined that all ships flying enemy flags were potential targets. This is unrestricted warfare in its purest sense the targeting of both civilian and military surface ships without prejudice. However, it became clear that in order to protect its commercial fleet, the Admiralty had ordered civilian ships to fly neutral flags. So now, the distinction between neutral-slash-enemy was blurred. This confusion over what their targets were had given U-boat officers a degree of flexibility. Contrary to popular belief, most of the Allied ships sunk in the five-month campaign were claimed when the U-boat was surfaced, and most U-boat crews remained committed to the rules of prize law, 
as this allowed Germany to ensure all targets were legal and to avoid political repercussions. In 1914, submarines only had enough room for about six torpedoes, so officers chose to save them for armored or protected targets. In most cases, merchant ships were claimed by the U-boat's deck gun, which would sink it after its crew were safely aboard lifeboats. But developments in anti-submarine measures soon forced U-boat commanders to change tactics and money the waters a bit more. Besides ramming, which was the only hope a merchant craft had at stopping a U-boat, the British response centered around merchant ships with concealed deck guns, known as Q-ships. The success of Q-ships depended entirely on deception. When a Q-ship found itself in the crosshairs, it would wait for the U-boat to come within range. Once it did, the Q-ship would open fire with its concealed weaponry, and hopefully damage the U-boat enough for it to make its escape. This tactic, although putting the Q-ship in just as much risk, was pretty successful, and by early summer 1915, had claimed three U-boats in the process. The inevitable result of this was that U-boat commanders became less picky about their targets, and would soon adopt a shoot-first, ask-questions-later mentality. It is of no surprise then, on the afternoon of May the 7th, German submarine U-20, commanded by Captain Walter Schweiger, was patrolling the waters south of the Irish coast. At 2 o'clock, Schweiger caught sight of a massive four-funneled steamship, the type which was categorized in the German handbook as an armed liner. Soon after submerging, Schweiger's U-20 fired a single torpedo 800 yards from the target. 18 minutes after detonation, the 30,000-ton liner, the Lusitania, capsized and sank, taking 1,200 civilians down with her. The sinking of the Lusitania shocked the world, and next week, we'll look at what it signified for the remainder of the U-Bow campaign, and why it did little to bring it to an end. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you wish to get in contact with me. Questions, comments, and suggestions are always more than welcome. If you wish to help out The Great War Podcast, there are a number of ways you can do that. First, we are currently and always accepting donations through our website. That again is thegreatwarpodcast.podman.com. Another way to help out is look us up on iTunes and write us a quick five-star review. Rating the show really helps keep us afloat in the rankings, which of course forces me to keep putting out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.